Every day I am making decisions about what to bring forth from within myself and put into the world. Am I going to put in my weariness? Am I going to put in my anger? Am I going to put in my hope? Am I going to take the risk of a new idea? What am I going to do today that will, one way or another, impact the world around me? Hello, hello, and welcome to the Meta Hour podcast with Sharon Salzberg. I'm Lily Cushman, and I produce this podcast. And today we're bringing you episode 209, which also happens to be the final episode of the real life series we've been doing the past couple months. And this is something we've done with Sharon's past couple books as well doing a little series just as a way to kind of bring the book to life. There's so many different nuances and I often think of these conversations as getting to kind of sit in on a meal that Sharon's having with a colleague, a friend, and to hear kind of what their thinking is about these different themes and topics. So that brings us to today's episode which is a recording taken from the Living an Authentic Life Summit from last month. And it's a conversation between Sharon and Parker J. Palmer. So Parker, if you don't know his work, he is an author, a speaker, an activist. He's someone that has not yet made an appearance on the podcast until today. But he has been in conversation with Sharon many times before in other platforms. And you'll hear in this conversation, they have a really kind of rich connection and bond between them. And this particular recording was part of the summit that centered around real life, the book. And it was placed on the final day, the fifth day of the summit, which was all about the emerging qualities of when we have been on a spiritual path and and taken on these practices as part of our life. So you'll hear a lot here about kind of those emerging qualities, uh, faith, community, uh, the ability to really embrace all parts of ourselves to embrace the brokenness, to embrace our wholeness, and the emergence of the true self or whatever language that one uses for that aspect of ourselves. And a lot about personal authenticity and the impact that has on our circle. So just some really interesting thoughts and it feels like a lovely way to bring this series to a close. And lastly, I'll say that Parker is also a poet and there's a fair amount of poetry just woven into this conversation, which I think you'll enjoy. Before we get to it, a quick announcement for you. In honor of Mental Health Awareness Month, which is happening in the US during the month of May, 
We're putting together a special series on mental health here on the podcast, and we'd love to hear from you. If there are certain topics or questions, anything you'd like to hear on the subject that's within our realm, you can send us an email to admin at SharonSalzberg.com. So let's get to today's episode, Sharon Salzberg and Parker J. Palmer. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg. Welcome back to the final day of our summit when we're exploring the theme of emergence and all of the great things that come with it. I'm so happy today to be sharing this time with my friend and collaborator, Parker Palmer. Parker is a writer, speaker, and activist who focuses on issues in education, community, leadership, spirituality, and social change. He's founder and senior partner emeritus of the Center for Courage and Renewal. He holds a PhD in sociology from the University of California at Berkeley, as well as 13 honorary doctorates, two distinguished achievement awards from the National Educational Press Association, and an award of excellence from the Associated Church Press. Parker is the author of 10 books, including On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, Healing the Heart of Democracy, the courage to create a politics worthy of the human spirit, and let your life speak, listening for the voice of vocation. Just even reading those, I think, wouldn't it be nice just to like take a vacation and just read them again and again and again? I would love that. But in the absence of that, I think we'll we'll uh, ask you a bunch of questions and see what emerges from our our joyous being here together again. Uh, it's so nice to see you, truly. And I'm wondering if you want to share a little bit about your background, uh, about your story, <laughs> so to speak, uh, and how you came to be, you know, writing all those books and and uh, caring so much about things like democracy and getting to hang out with you too, my friend. Well, it's well, it's great. lovely to it's lovely to be back with you this way, Sharon. Thank you for. For inviting me, well, you know, I'm I'm about to turn 84, and so how I got here is a long story, and I'll I'll try not to uh, not to bore you with it. But um, uh, I started out in the Chicago area. I uh, went to Carleton College, studied sociology and philosophy. Went to Union Seminary in New York for a year until um, God kicked me out and uh, went out to Berkeley and did a PhD in sociology during the 60s, which of course was a, was a great wake-up time for, for a kid from the Chicago suburbs. And at the end of my doctoral work, 1969, the cities were burning. There was the ongoing racial conflict in the society had flamed up once again. And um, I decided that I wanted to use my sociology in the in the streets rather than in the classroom. So I basically left my academic career and became a community organizer in Washington, D.C. And after five years there, um, through a windy, twisty path that I, that I won't bother to recount here, I ended up living in a Quaker intentional community called Pendle Hill, where 
I got a role on the staff and spent 11 years living in a in what's a kind of a Quaker version of ashram, monastery, intentional community, adult study center, which was hugely informative in my life. And so put all that together and you have healing the heart of democracy, the courage to create a politics worthy of the human spirit. But bef before I ever got that deeply into political issues, um, I was puzzling out, as, as I think we all do, my own personal journey, uh, in, especially in, in the book called Let Your Life Speak, Listening for the Voice of Vocation. My own vocation has been hither and yon. Uh, it hasn't followed uh, any sort of straight line any more than yours has. And I, I always take comfort in good company like yours on this twisty, windy vocational road. Um, and then the most recent book, On the Brink of Everything, Grace, Gravity, and Getting Old, well, that comes just because I'm getting old and trying to do it consciously um, and with a, a kind of intentionality that I think uh, can really can really help in the in the aging process, really in in any process. So that's the short story of eighty four years of me. <laughs> it's great. Seems to me we're almost at your birthday. I'll have to remember that. Hmm. Uh, as I mentioned in your introduction. Today's theme centers around the idea of emergence and specifically what that sort of growth leads us to clarity, wisdom, creativity, awe, kindness, really good things like that. Much of your work helps people come to this place of emergence. And before we begin to expand on these qualities, I'd like to know how you help your people basically have faith in the sense of wholeness? Well, it's a, it's a great question. And of course, a lot of us um, come uh, to work like this because we're seeking something we haven't been able to find. And maybe we've been seeking it so long with, with so much frustration, having received false leads that we don't even believe it's possible anymore to come into a sense of personal wholeness. Um, I'm always eager to say to people from, from my own experience, and I say this only after I've listened to them for a long time and asked them a lot of questions, because I think the key to helping anyone on this path is to see them, to hear them, to receive them as they are, and, and not to give advice. But once I've sat with them individually or in a group for a long enough time, I, I sometimes like to put out a little framing of what wholeness is all about. And it's very simple. Wholeness does not mean perfection. Wholeness means embracing all that is broken in you and embracing it as part of the whole of you. Yes, I am my gifts and my strengths. I am the things I've gotten right. I am also my weaknesses and, and what I see as my failures, my broken parts, the things I've gotten wrong. And, and what's impressed me on my journey as a person who's taken three deep dives into clinical depression is how embracing your own darkness, embracing your own brokenness 
can transform it into a befriending force in your life rather than a defeating force. And in our culture, I think that's a, that's a big uh, twist on the notion of wholeness, which we too easily confuse with, with perfection. I think the, the key to it, whether I'm in a classroom, college or university classroom, uh, or in a retreat uh, with a group, and I've done a lot of that kind of work, as you know, as you have too, I think the key to it is a high degree of intentionality about the kind of spaces we create for people to live and move and be together in for people who are on some kind of quest seeking something more fundamental, uh, more trustworthy, more grounded than where they stand right now or what they feel they have right now. I deeply believe that the qualities that we're that we're looking for are inside everyone, and that what matters is providing them a space where those qualities can come out. You do that internally all the time with your meditations and your Buddhist teachings. I have a little different slant on it, but it's it's all about creating space for the emergence of, of what Thomas Merton called true self, of what Hasidic Jews call the spark of di- the divine in every being, uh, what Quakers, I'm a Quaker, what Quakers call the inner teacher or the inner light, or what secular humanists call identity and integrity. There, there are so many languages for this thing that, that we, we, it's important that we not get hung up on language. What, what you name this true self is of really no consequence as far as I'm concerned. That you name it, that you name it in order to be able to see it, is, I think, very important. Because if we don't have some name for the being in human being, then I think we reduce each other to objects or to commodities, and bad things happen as they do in thoughtless cultures uh, around the world, and especially Western culture, I think. Well, what you said, I think, was so important around not trying to defeat or annihilate parts of ourselves or experiences we've had uh, within or without, but to somehow integrate it all into the great wholeness of of life and, and realize there's a kind of integrity in that, there's a kind of dignity in that. And that we're kind of primed for battle, you know, like I'm going to go to war with that sorrow or, or whatever. It shouldn't be there, that fear, you know, how weak, how terrible. And yet if we can turn around that attitude, that spirit of approach, then we can create a whole other environment, which is really sort of more the point to accompany oneself or others through that journey. Yeah, exactly. I think it's a huge gift to each other to be able to to be present that way. And you know, I'm not sure you and I have ever talked about this, but as part of my own aging, as part of my journey into my 80s, I have, of course, been reflecting on death, as as I have in some way ever since I was in my 20s and and read St. Benedict, who said, daily keep your death before your eyes. I think for a moment I felt like that was a kind of morbid counsel, but then I then I realized 
if you if you do keep your death before your eyes, you come into a much deeper appreciation of life. And and that's the whole point of that of that council, of course. As I move closer to that day when something's going to happen, I know not what, I become more and more aware that the saddest possible way to die, for me at least, would be to die realizing that I spent all these years on earth without ever having shown up here as my true self, as my light and my darkness, my wholeness that contains brokenness, everything I've got, offering it up for whatever it's worth. Because what do we have to offer in the long run except true self, except who we are, our experience, our groping, our fumbling, our are trying to find and learn our our willingness to open ourselves to each other and to life itself as we seek alone and together. I mean, it's about solitude and it's about community, isn't it? Well, it is. You know, if I were going to think about trying to describe my relationship with my own meditation teachers, and one of the aspects would be they help me have confidence in places or times I may not have had confidence. And like what you just said, you know, uh, a little earlier about being able to accompany those states, that seems unbelievable, you know, that that's the point, you know, like, what about getting all riled up and hateful and ashamed and, and all of that? And it's like, no, it's different. The path is different than that. Or even to be able to contemplate your own death. How weird is that in the cultural imperative of, uh, don't pay attention to anything that implies loss of control or, yeah. or change. Yeah, or the, that is a downer, you know, a so-called yeah, downer. It's a bummer. <laughs> it's a bummer, yeah, exactly. It's a bummer. Exactly. You know, the, at the end of the day, there are a few words that I like to be able to say to people because when these words have been said to me, they've made all the difference. I go to a trustworthy friend. I talk about the things that are really troubling me about myself. I talk about the obstacles on the journey and the way I've tripped over some of them. And again, after being heard and seen so that I know that this friend is making an honest response, the words that come back that are so comforting to me are, welcome to the human race. (laughs) Welcome to the human race. It's a way of saying, I've seen it all. There's nothing here that surprises me. There's nothing here you can't survive. No, you don't have to be filled with shame. You know, instead, just be filled with honesty about the mixed threads of the life that you're pursuing, and perhaps the one that's been pursuing you, because sometimes those are different. And and what's interesting to me, Sharon, about that welcome to the human race is that The natural world is one of my big teachers. I spend as much time as I can in the woods or on the water, in the mountains, in the desert. I'm not out there as much as I'd like, but for significant periods of time. And when I'm out in in the desert of New Mexico and I'm walking by cliffs, rocks that have been there for millions and millions of years, my strong sense is that they're speaking to me. We've seen it all. <laughs> and we're just fine with you as you are. You know, you're part of a 
much larger story. And there's this very interesting feeling that I get out in those wild places that the cosmos is absolutely indifferent to me and at the same time absolutely compassionate and forgiving toward me. And I think those are two sides of a very thin coin, you know, both of which add up to acceptance. It's a beautiful feeling to have. And when we can come together as human beings and offer that blessing to each other, what a great thing. So this is what you mean by tapping into our authentic selfhood, I gather. It's uh, that sense of access to that knowing, that being. It is, yeah. It, you know, that, that phrase gets bandied about a lot, um, authentic selfhood. And I think it's always worth examination because it certainly doesn't mean blatting all over the place, whatever your emotion of the moment is, you know, which can sometimes do more harm than good. I understand authentic selfhood and bringing authentic selfhood into the lives we live, the work we do, the the relationships that we hold. I understand that as the alternative to what they call phoning it in, you know. I first came on to this notion of authenticity in my in my work as a teacher and in writing a book like The Courage to Teach about education. And when I would interview students about the teachers that did them very little good, they would often mention something that reminded me of phoning it in. You know, this is a teacher who held himself or herself at great distance from us, at great distance from the subject. We never knew why this subject interested the teacher, so why should it interest us? We never had a sense of who this teacher was as a human being, so the subject he or she was teaching felt inhuman too. But when a teacher showed up as who they are, warts and all, didn't have to be the best teacher on the planet, but if there was an authenticity there, an authenticity of passion, of care for the subject and for the students, if there was something real about this exchange called teaching and learning, then students could get with the program. And I've always understood authenticity as, you know, as providing the kind of connective tissue that makes education work, that makes teaching and learning work, and I think makes any kind of cooperative effort work. Connecting us in community, sometimes around a leader, with a a mission, a task to be done, for which we share a certain passion. It's true the word authentic could be a little bit tricky because sometimes people take it to mean don't hold back, you know, yeah. like reveal totally everything you think and that what a jerk you are and how judgmental you are and you know how you don't care about anybody just but as long as you're revealing it you are authentic. You're genuine, you know. Yes, exactly. Yeah, you can do some harm that way. So I think authenticity is like everything else it's an act of discernment and it's about discerning who you are. I often call it life on the Mobius strip, this very interesting shape that we can make with a strip of paper where the inner and the outer 
seamlessly join each other on the Mobius strip so that it, it becomes a, a three-dimensional object that has only one side. You can trace the inner all the way around to where it emerges onto the outer and never lift your finger from the surface, but continue on the outer until it merges back into the inner. And I see our living as that way, as having the, the character, the shape, the flow of a Mobius strip. So every day I am making decisions about what to bring forth from within myself and put into the world. Am I going to put in my weariness? Am I going to put in my anger? And Am I going to put in my hope? Am I going to take the risk of a new idea? What am I going to do today that will, one way or another, impact the world around me? Maybe just two feet or so, but it will impact the world around me. And then the world is going to throw stuff back at me. Um, and I have decisions to make about how I internalize the feedback I get. Because we and the world around us are constantly co-creating each other. And if we can make good discernments about that co-creation, we can create something worthy and good and beautiful. If we make bad discernments, we can create a holy mess. And you don't have to look too far to find examples of that. Mm -hmm. So I find it very helpful to keep that image of the Mobius strip in mind and keep in mind that I'm traveling it day in and day out. And I have decisions to make about what to bring forth from within and about how to handle that which is thrown back at me. What do I do with critique is a good example. Am I open to it? Do I absorb it? Do I sort the good from the bad? Do I learn from it one way or another? Or am I resistant, resentful, guarded? Do I find myself shutting down? You know, these are important questions that appear to us in micro moments every day of our lives. Something that you said, Parker, made me think in an interesting way about silence and different ways that we can sit in silence and be a friend of silence. And I'm used to, of course, silence as a support to a method. You know, there are instructions, there's a, a path, there's a process, and we get to let go of so much if we enjoy silence as a, as a part of that. I've also been told by some people in the Quaker tradition about letting the silence itself be the instruction and not employing a method or a, a technique, but allowing the silence to speak to you, whatever it, it has to, to offer in that moment. And so when you talk about discernment and you talk about deep listening, that's what came to my mind, mm -hmm. is that part of what we lack in current life, modern life, is often for many people is just that kind of silence and, and the opportunity to, to deeply listen. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, as a Quaker, um, I'm very aware that, that we, we especially lack opportunities to sit in silence with other people. We always have the personal choice to walk into the living room and, and not flip on the radio or the television, but simply to sit, stare out the window, listen, 
see what comes. But there's something about what Quakers call a gathered silence that can be especially rich and deep. And that's the context in which I've often found the silence speaking a voice of its own. And it's very interesting to have an hour of silence in a Quaker meeting where sometimes people speak out of the silence. That's, you know, that's not uncommon because they feel led to say something by way of a prayer, a hope, a struggle, whatever it may be. But sometimes the whole hour passes with nobody saying anything, and yet people emerging feeling a deep, deep sense of connection that wasn't there when they walked into the room. We have a conceit in this culture that um, we make everything happen with our words. (laughs) And of course, we make things happen with our words. That's true. And it's important to be choiceful about what words we speak. But there are things happening beneath our words, above our words, around our words, that we need to be attentive to, that we need to listen for. Life was formed for a very long time before speaking creatures emerged on the planet. So I do think silence Silence is a, is a sort of third voice between thee and me. And if we can make space for that silence to emerge and teach us something, I think we'll be better off. And the great contrast, of course, is that in Western culture, psychological studies, sociological studies have shown that when a group of people gets together in a room, 15 seconds is about the longest period of silence that people can stand before someone has to say something. Because the feeling is something's gone wrong here (laughs) if silence is all we got, you know. And that to me seems a great shame. But you, you have to make an explicit covenant to have that silence. At the same time, I love the kind of meditative exercise where we have a guided tour of the silence. And we're invited, as you so often do, and do so beautifully, to pay attention to certain kinds of things in ourselves or in the environment that we might otherwise miss. And whenever I've done that with you or other teachers, I've been aware of how much I miss when I'm not reminded to listen for this or feel for that. I find that very, very helpful, too. No, that's beautiful. And I totally agree, you know, certainly about the culture or some cultures, lack of silence and and sort of rush to make something happen. You know, let's hear something. And I've had the funny experience more recently of teaching online and sometimes recording for an app with meditation instruction. And basically, I was giving the advice you can't really be silent because people will think their app is broken or their <laughs> their internet stopped working. And I thought, I can't possibly, you know, just talk on and on and on and on. So I got in the habit of saying, and when I become silent, that's the signal for you to see if you can put into practice what I was just talking about. But I was doing one presentation and I forgot. 
to say that. And it was on Zoom, so I was reading the chat, and it was like, oh, my God, they do think that. People are saying, live stream stopped. You know, like, <laughs> right. Stop talking. Where is she? What, you know, like, what, my sound what, went. <laughs> what button do I push? I know. It was like, oh, no. I, I was once interviewed, Sharon, on public radio about Quakerism, and I talked enough about silence that my host said, uh, let's just experiment with that for a minute. And I said, you, you mean a full minute? And she said, yes, a full 60 seconds. Well, long story short, I think she almost got fired because she did that. The station got so many calls. Your transmission's down. What's right. wrong? Where's my program? <laughs> there we go. But let's also talk about words and the special use of words. I think of you and I think of poetry. Actually, it's been such a source of inspiration and comfort for many, the poems that you post, the poems you've written, the poems you bring to us. Um, and I'm just curious, like, what draws you to a certain poem? Do you sit with it and absorb it for a while, or does it just strike you right away, or both? Yeah, I was a, a latecomer to poetry. I think it had been ruined for me in high school or college, you know, by uh, an overly analytic approach, which was much more about who was this poet and what was the context of his or her writing and what did he or she really mean by these words. What turned me on to poetry was having a wonderful teacher when I was in my mid-30s who said, yeah, we want to understand the poet and his or her context, but the big question here is how does this poem intersect your life? How does it interrogate you? what comes to you as you reflect on this poem. And so I have, for a long time, had the habit of reading poetry every morning, a couple of things from poets I love and from poets I'm just learning, getting to know, and then listening within myself for, for the, the kind of response that says, there's, there's something here worth tracking, worth, worth following. And I, I think what I love about Poetry the most, I think, was summed up in a in an Emily Dickinson poem, which of course contains many M dashes, as Emily loved to use them. But it's called Tell the Truth But Tell It Slant. And I have it right here, just I'll read it. It's a short little poem. Tell all the truth, but tell it slant. Success in circuit lies. Too bright for our infirm delight, the truth's superb surprise. As lightning to the children eased with explanation kind, the truth must dazzle gradually, or every man be blind. So I think what Emily is saying there is the, the big truths that we're after, trying to understand, trying to look squarely at, trying to appropriate into our lives, are so bright they're going to blind us if we run headlong at them, like plunging your face into the sun. But a poem gives us the gift of telling that truth slant so that we can kind of catch it out of the corner of our eye. And I've always been intrigued as a kind of amateur astronomer or observer of the skies that there are certain dim stars that you can see much better from the corner of your eye than you can by looking at them straight on, because those receptors in the corner of your eye are more receptive to that form of, of light. 
So it's those on-the-slant insights that I pick up in poems that I really love that open up parts of me that would not be opened if somebody just drove straight at me with a lecture on the subject. You know, it's more the hint, the look over here, I wonder what that is, might it be, such and such. Those are the things that the kind of prompts or clues that draw me in to what is often a deeper level of inquiry. And I think when I turn to writing a poem, as I sometimes do, I think it's because I've found that I cannot say in prose what I can perhaps say in poetry, at least to myself, if not to other people. So that also makes me think of the phrase uh, which you brought to us in a way of letting your heart speak making room, making space, seeing what form, what manifestation, what expression is emerging. Yeah, exactly. It's We have some f- folk wisdom in this culture that, that should be rejected and shelved for the rest of time, such as never wear your heart on your sleeve or play your cards close to your vest. All of these counsels which have to do with making yourself invulnerable. Right. I get that on a certain level. But I also feel that folks who think the world is a jungle and need to live guarded all the way that time are actually the people who are creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. The world becomes a jungle the more we behave that way. And I think a lot in life depends on folks who are willing to get out there and operate as if the world might be the beloved community of Martin Luther King Jr.'s vision, hopeful vision. Mm -hmm. And I think education ought to be preparing people to live exactly that way, not to live masked and armored lives. So yeah, letting your heart speak, letting your life speak, and figuring out what it's, not only what it's saying to the world, but in the first instance, what it's saying to you Mm -hmm. about the right path for your life as in that old Shaker song, coming down in the place just right. What is that place for you? What is that place for me? And the answer may change day by day or decade by decade, but it's always a question worth asking. I was part of a program the other day presenting, and somebody brought up kind of issues of self-worth, needing to always be in control or getting the job done, being in a hurry, you know, and And then they said, but what I think I really need is a nap. And somebody put in a quotation from you, Parker, in the the chat, something like, a nap is an existential imperative. (laughs) And that became, that's been my guideline for two days now. I think I'll take a nap. Exactly. Well, I'll, I'll tell you something about that, Sharon. I was in the audience for what you and Reggie were doing oh, on were? that program. <laughs> I didn't know that. <laughs> and I put that you statement put in. in. <laughs> oh, there was a direct quotation from Parker Palmer, the venerable Parker Palmer. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> because you guys had started talking about napping, which I thought was just perfect. It was about eldering and yeah. all of a sudden it was about napping. <laughs> I thought, this is so there you good. Go. <laughs> So I just had to say, well, napping is an existential imperative. Oh, I right? love that. I wonder if, I if may write Aaron it and other people knew that. That was fantastic. That, that may be the title of my next book. I don't know. All right. 
Well, you know, that that is in such contrast to that kind of myth of invulnerability, like, I don't need to rest. I don't need to slow down. I don't need anything. Uh, which brings me back to what you've shared so powerfully about your own experiences of depression and the ways others may relate to that and the compassion, really, that develops for oneself and, and for others that's possible to develop in in a kind of authentic experience where you're not adding, we're not adding, you know, the shame and the judgment and feeling like I should be beyond this and count the years of practice or effort. It shouldn't be this way. And if we can let go of the grip of some of that, then we have the possibility of tremendous compassion coming up because it's never just oneself ever. Whatever the situation is, it's never oneself only. Right. And we can really find one another in, in these places of very strong pain. Yeah, absolutely. I, I learned so much and have written, of course, a fair amount about my three deep dives into depression. And um, I'm so glad I, I wrote what I wrote, not first and foremost because I think it's been helpful to others, but because it's, it helped me show up in the world with the wholeness of of my experience. And, you know, one of the things I learned was about self-care. I have tried to sum that up in this simple statement that often comes back to me, which is that self-care is never a selfish act. It's always being done on behalf of others whose lives you touch. And it's so important to remember that in a culture that does not value self-care. As you know, I think I'm very interested in the work of Valerie Carr, who wrote See No Stranger, and has, I think, developed a, a kind of new approach to the nonviolent social change. But she points out that in the civil rights movement of the, of the mid-20th century, which was largely you know, dominated, at least the most famous people in it were men, self-care was just overlooked. And a lot of lives foundered on, on the rocks of that hard, hard work. The movements that she's interested in and has helped foment have heavy involvement of women and feminine influence, where not only self-care, but mutual care, team care, is a crucial ingredient. And I think she's absolutely right. Social change isn't going to happen unless we figure out how to be in it for the long haul. And self-care and mutual care is such an important part of that. So I'm so glad that I, that I wrote, as I did, about my depression. But there's one thing I like to say to people about that, which is that it took me 10 years from my first depression to write about it. I wasn't quite sure why at the time, but now I know. I needed to wait until that devastating experience, which so many would look upon as a flaw or a failure or a weakness. I had to wait until that was as fully integrated as possible into my sense of self. I had to wait until I could easily and comfortably stand in front of people and say, yes, this is who I am. I am my deep dive into despair, and I am whatever gifts and strengths you see in me at the moment. I'm all of the, the above, and why would I not want to acknowledge that? 
It's part of what made me who I am and as I am. And I'm most comfortable being myself, being authentic in the world. So doing so has, I'm glad that it's been helpful to others, but it's been powerfully therapeutic for me to no longer be afraid of myself in that regard. I think one of the traps that we often fall into, again, because of habit or cultural conditioning in our striving for perfection and always being in control and is, of course, the rejection of whole experiences and encounters and experiences that are within. And no wonder we're all so lonely. This is described you know, as an epidemic. It's like, wow, of course. But I also want to say that self-care does not mean self-indulgence, because you've also spoken and written a lot about the importance of meeting one's growing edge. You know, so what does meeting our growing edge do for us? And does it help us develop these qualities of emergence? Clearly, it can't come from what it normally comes from, you know, if I understand the term, which is more kind of either ambition or sense of deep dissatisfaction. And I've got to I've got to move on. I've got to make a change. I've got to be different. But it's something else entirely that you're talking about. Yeah, I, th- I think it's that which lies sort of just beyond the known boundaries of our lives, known by us anyway, and kind of whispers to us and hints in our direction and kind of tickles our imagination and in some way calls us forward. It's that voice saying, well, good on you for what you've done so far, but you know what? There's a new adventure or a new uh, opportunity or, or a new challenge or a new calling lying just beyond the edge of your life. Why don't you come over and take a look? And of course, we don't like to walk to the edge. We're afraid we'll fall off. But here's the deal. The world isn't flat. (laughs) You can just keep going and walk into that possibility and start to understand some new and important things. But it also means, you know, letting go of some of the things that you've done and mastered. And part of you would prefer to keep doing because you know the ropes. But if you have a a low tolerance for boredom, as I do, then you, you're more likely maybe to go to the edge. Well, now I'm thinking of one of your book titles, On the Brink of Everything, because we're on the edge and we're on the brink, and, you know, it's like, yeah, right. whoa, yeah, we're right. out here. Yeah, yeah well, it, it just helps to remember that the world is not flat, you know. <laughs> and that naps are existential imperative. Right, and you can nap on the edge as well as anywhere else. Now just, that's scary. <laughs> just put up guardrails. Don't roll over. You know? <laughs> okay, we're going to have a whole cosmology based on this. I can tell. <laughs> right. It's coming. <laughs> it's really coming. <laughs> and I just want to ask before we you know, come to an end about community because of everything that you've said, the Quaker experience, finding silence with one another, finding being met with one another and that beautiful experience of being seen. And therefore one could say finding love with one another, which is really what it is, is that sense of being seen, that sense of being known and, and seeing someone else more fully. As you know, Sharon, the word community is 
as important to me as the word solitude. It's one of the great paradoxes of life, I think, that we, whether you look at us spiritually or biologically, we were made for community and we were made for solitude. Clearly so, because there are certain parts of our journey that we can only take alone. And we need, in many ways, to practice our own solitude in order to develop the capacity to take those parts of the journey where no one else can accompany us all by ourselves into profound illness, into death, into loneliness that might turn to solitude, etc., etc., while at the same time staying engaged with the community that in, in a broad, generic way gave rise to us the community to which we belong, the community that sustains us, and the community that we want to help flourish going forward. So I treasure community in its many forms. I, you know, I lived for 11 years in a highly intentional community, the Quaker community called Pendle Hill, where we practiced all kinds of pretty rigorous communal disciplines. For example, everyone who works there made the same amount of money. It didn't matter what your education was or what job you were doing. I was dean of studies with a PhD from Berkeley, and I made the same money as an 18-year-old who came to cook in the kitchen because they didn't know what to do after high school. And that, that was a, a great spiritual discipline for me, a great leveling discipline, a great grinding away at my own sense of entitlement, and a great opening into realizing that human beings are valuable in and of and for themselves, not in terms of how much they make or what kind of work they do, and that every person was worthy of attention. And those are things I knew in theory, but when the economic differences get flattened that way, you have a chance to learn them in practice. So. This is such a critical dimension of life, and it's possible even when you're not living face-to-face -face with 80 people, as I did for those 11 years, and, I, and I, I treasure the kind of community that can happen between two or three people who gather with a certain intentionality, a certain commitment, a certain discipline regarding how we want to hold life together, what kind of space we want to create between us, to go back to the spaces that we were talking about earlier. So spaces that honor the self, that honor relationships, that reach deep into us to take us to our own growing edges, and that reach deep into us to help heal the broken parts that come from the past. To me, those are the gifts of community, and I, and I treasure them in, in whatever form they take. Thank you so much. You are a gift. And, and when I got so happy when you said my next book, I thought, oh, he's going to write another book. Good. <laughs> <laughs> well, <Yeah>. if, <laughs> if it's the book about napping, you know, I'll just have to practice a lot, right? That's right. We have learn, to rehearse. No doubt. Learn the territory. <laughs> and I'm wondering if you would close our time together today by sharing a poem with us. Thank you so much. Yeah, having talked about my depression, I'm going to talk about a poem I wrote that actually 
helped me find my way through that depression. I remember to this day the uh, circumstances under which I wrote it. I was in Kentucky on a retreat with a spiritual teacher who had regarded as a healer. And uh, in the middle of one of these deep depressions, I took a walk down a country road and walked by a, a field of, on a farm that had recently been plowed, or as the language goes, harrowed. And so this poem came to me rather quickly. It didn't heal me instantly, of course, but over time it did its work, and I value it to this day. The poem is called Harrowing. The plow has savaged this sweet field, misshapen clods of earth kicked up, rocks and twisted roots exposed to view, last year's growth demolished by the blade. I have plowed my life this way, turned over a whole history, looking for the roots of what went wrong, until my face is ravaged, furrowed, scarred. Enough. The job is done. Whatever's been uprooted, let it be seedbed for the growing that's to come. I plowed to unearth last year's reasons. The farmer plows to plant a greening season. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank and, you, Sharon. It's always a joy to be with you. It's such a tremendous delight to be with you. And to learn more about Parker and his numerous projects, you can find him at www.couragerenewal.org. Thank you so much. Thank you. Hey folks, thanks for listening. If you'd like to learn more about Sharon's many offerings, her online events, or to get yourself a copy of her new book, Real Life, you can visit SharonSalzberg.com. This has been the Meta Hour podcast from the Be Here Now Network. May you be safe, may you be happy, may you be healthy, and may you live with ease.